Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. This is episode 64. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined as always by Ben Badler. What's going on, man? I'm good. We're back from Jupiter. It was, that was the first time I think we've seen each other in person all year. It was, uh, yeah, again, was... you, you, uh, decided not to see me in San Diego earlier this summer. Uh, I get it. You had some beef with me, but you were forced to see me this year. I had to give you a parking pass. So I think that's the only reason we actually saw each other in person at Jupiter, but well, it was nice I'm to see you, it... Ben. Uh, yeah, that was nice to see you too. I'm glad it didn't rain much in Jupiter. I know you're, you're, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was I uh I was I waiting for this to come up. You you basically carried around that umbrella all day and walked around the Roger Dean complex for for no reason with that umbrella. You could have you could have packed an extra monster or Red Bull or or caffeinated beverage of your choice in the space that your silly umbrella was taking up. But you actually um you missed the rain. There was some rain. I think you had to leave before the rain came in. I left um, right as it was raining. I could not have timed it more perfectly. Yeah, you did. It's funny. I didn't. I didn't really. Although knew I, it would around. have been fine if it rained while I was there, because I did have the umbrella. Yeah. Well, still, uh, I, I stand by the fact that it was a waste. I actually had a rain a rain jacket and I put it on when the rain happened. Are you surprised by that? I I am a little bit. Is your is your iPad okay? Did it did it get? Oh yeah. Or? No, the iPad's great. Uh, waterproof on. bag. You know, it's it's hidden in the North Face pretty securely you know speaking of the the bag i i had one scout come up to me and basically critique the fact that my book bag looked old which i didn't realize was much of a priority it holds all my things i'm an extreme minimalist over here ben i don't need i don't need fancy things umbrellas or fancy book bags but the one i have uh yeah protected all all the gear so i could write up write up some reports on players after the fact but well i'm glad you're able to to make it out of the the conditions there yeah, yeah, they were really intense. But I mean, what are your thoughts on? We we wanted to talk about Jupiter today, obviously, since we just spent a full week essentially at the event, watching a ton of players on the website. Right now, I have um, basically forty players who stood out in one way or another for me with reports on those players. If you want to check that out for Baseball America subscribers, I believe it's just for Baseball America subscribers. Um, but yeah, again, we really appreciate you guys subscribing and supporting um the website it really allows us to to both go down there and actually watch the game and tell you about the players so um that's on the site now i know you have a post from the minority baseball prospects uh game that was right before jupiter uh where you can maybe talk about that as well but a lot of amateur baseball for us in the peak of the postseason which we are going to talk about on this podcast as well but i guess which direction do you want to head first i've got jupiter on my mind so i'm happy to go there if you want yeah, what was your takeaway from Jupiter this year, either as far as maybe some of the best players you saw or just your overall sense of the, uh, especially the 2024 class? Obviously, that's top of mind. I mean, it's there's 2025s. I was watching a lot of 2025s there, some 2026s. Uh, I really like that class, although the, Jupiter's not so heavy on those players. Um, but what did you sense, Get what was your sense of the talent overall mm. at in Jupiter this year or just in the 2024 class overall what, what did it add to your your feelings about that class I would say it it kind of solidified my opinions on the class like I just got a lot of feedback about what we previously thought of this draft class I took every opportunity I could 
when I was at fields, when I was talking with scouts to just ask them what they thought about the class, what they thought about the talent this year. And it seemed to be pretty similar to what we've talked about on this podcast in, in previous episodes. It just doesn't feel like the best draft class overall. Again, this is always an event where a lot of the top end names will take the event off. Um, particularly arms this year. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, you know, everyone, I might have like a bit of an a bit of a counter take to this because it felt like a fairly typical event in terms of the premium names at the top of the class actually being at the event. I think I think everyone's sense of the talent being down is more related to the class as a whole being down than like any larger number of players not showing up, if that makes sense. Like I don't think this year an outsized number of of top players didn't come. I think it's just the class isn't that great. And so teams are kind of walking around waiting to be wowed on the field. And that didn't necessarily happen a ton. Although I don't want to like hammer that point too hard. Cause there, there were a lot of impressive performances that we can talk about and, and players who stood out. Um, but for me, this event still feels more like a, it's the chance to get a few looks at some, some of the top hitters, who do show up at the event and see them in live game situations, which I think is a better scouting environment for those players. And also a real good preview for some of the impactful 2025 players. Like I was able to see a lot of, of 2025s that you have at the top of our list right now uh, and just get a good, not necessarily always like a super positive first impression, but get eyes on them for the first time in many cases for me. And I think it's a really good event for that. Um, and more than anything, I think the biggest value for me is just the the networking opportunities that you have, like being able to run into scouts that you haven't seen in a while, um, meet meet other scouts that maybe you've known just um, either virtually through the phone, through the internet, uh, you just talked to via email, um, college coaches like it's it's really nice to run into people and and talk baseball talk about the industry talk about the players um, so I think it's there are other events that are going to basically give you every single player in the class that that you really want to see this one has a lot of players more than you can even watch but I think I think the underclass looks and a lot of the just the scouting convention aspect of the event is really the the separator for me but what are your thoughts yeah, I would throw podcast listeners into that one too. I always appreciate the uh, kind kind compliments. People came up and both scouts and uh, agents, parents, all sorts of folks. So you mean advisors? Advisors? Well, they are agents for other players. But then I guess what we have to call them advisors. We don't have to call them anything. But um, <laughs> no, that's good. But no, I, I had a lot of people come up and say, you know, I really love Ben on your podcast. I was like, yeah, yeah, that Ben's is, good. yeah, yeah. The players were all right, but that was my favorite part of of uh, being there. But yeah, like yeah. like you said, it's it's more players there than you'll get to see in a typical showcase setting, which is good and bad. Like if you go to the area code games or you go to East Coast Pro. Like everything is on one field, you're not going to miss everything, miss anything, as long as you're just sitting your in your seat for. Yeah, as long as you don't pass you know, out from like heat exhaustion or you fall asleep yeah. from being there all day. <laughs> yeah, for being there for twelve hours, but uh, you'll you're you're gonna miss maybe a lot more just because you can't be everywhere at once in Jupiter. But you're more likely to uh, 
uh, you know, see players who can pop up and uh, maybe make a name for themselves in Jupiter or, or get some more attention that they otherwise wouldn't have. And, and while a lot of the top pitchers, especially for, for 2024, were not there, you could see as soon as a game wrapped up where the next game scheduled starter was – uh, I would say a second or even a third tier type pitcher for 2024, yeah. the golf carts just immediately swarmed and filled behind home plate where there was probably 40 or so golf carts uh, <laughs> just angling for a spot to make sure they could see, you know, somebody who might be number 78 or so on our high school top 100 for 2024. Yeah, I would say the first year, maybe the first two years that I went to this event, I was extremely stressed about the games I was going to, the players I was going to see, trying to make sure I could like map out my schedule, have a couple second secondary fields that were in the same clover or or near a primary game so that when the, the specific players that I focus on weren't playing, I could bounce over to a field and just I was really trying to maximize um, my looks. And I think I still do that to some extent, but at this point, it's really, it's nice to just have your list of, of priority targets each day and priority games. And then as you're at the field, kind of just free yourself up to move around based on where the scouts are. Cause you could really go to this event and just follow the golf carts and you'd probably get a pretty good look at, at all the guys that you need to see all the top talents. Um, cause to your point, like <laughs> it is funny when you're on a clover and, it feels like 80% of the scouts and evaluators are right behind one field, three or four golf cart rows deep, um, watching a pitcher, watching the Canes lineup, which I think the Canes were probably the most prospect-laden team uh, at the event. They, they did a nice job of getting a lot of their top guys there. And I think there are even a number of, of top guys who didn't show up for them that would have made the team even more impressive. But yeah, what is your, I don't, I'm not sure if we talked about this on our preview podcast, but I think we did a pretty decent job this year of not consistently being at the same field, which, um, like selfishly, really I think it would be my, more fun. My main yeah, yeah. Yeah. Selfishly, I think it would be fun to take in more games with you, Ben, but I think, I think we divided and conquered pretty well, pretty naturally. Obviously you're focused on more of the underclass guys to a, to a greater extent than I am. Um, but what is your what is your like evaluation process at this event like and, and has it evolved since the first year you went and, and what was your first year going to this event i think mine would have been 2017. the well to your point too about the golf carts the other one is when you see a whole bunch of scouts lined up to the side watching and taking video and especially high speed video of certain players and you're like, all right, maybe this guy's a little bit lower tier uh, where we have him right now, but clearly there's a lot of interest <laughs> from clubs who are telling their video guys, hey, go grab video of um, of these players and other players where they they might be pretty prominent players. And you're looking around, you're like, hmm, <laughs> like where where is everybody? Now, you know, people have different schedules and they're doing different things but like it, it definitely stands out who uh you know when there's a, a whole bunch of people off to the side taking video of yeah. somebody and then there's other players where it 
it thins out a little bit more yeah. even though they might be a little bit more famous one of my one of my favorite things about like scouting the scouts at events and i don't think this is necessarily a feature of jupiter specifically there are other events where it is more common but if you're in a scouting section with a bunch of scouts and every all of a sudden like the chatter between pitches just goes away and things get really quiet. That's definitely when you need to like pay attention because something has uh, caused the scouts to stop joking around and messing around and they're really locked in. Uh, so I love those little, uh, those human moments about being at the field and like watching the evaluators to see what you should be paying, paying attention that's, to. If you're not that's watching. like when I think that, that was the first time I saw Julio Rodriguez one time was at a big mm. showcase and like, you know, like the yeah. first day everybody's coming in they're all chatting, like, you know, like you mm-hmm. usually, especially as an international scout, you're going out and you're going with other, uh, you're just going out with other scouts in your organization to either your own academy, um, you know, like the Yankee scouts or the Yankees academy to, to see a, you know, private workout that they have set up or a sim game or something like that, or they're traveling out, you know, with other members of their organization to, uh, you know, to different fields in the Dominican Republic or Venezuela or wherever, and they're going with their their colleagues. And then you do run into other people uh, at, at games sometimes or at fields or, or, you know, certainly at hotels as well. But at these big showcases, everybody uh, is there and you're seeing a lot of colleagues and old friends. So especially that first day, everybody's just kind of getting together and chatting uh, and then, like, they're t- every I just remember everybody was taking BP, and then Julio Rodriguez gets up and he starts hitting balls, and like, all of a sudden it gets like real, real quiet. Like, except except for the really loud noises coming off of Julio Rodriguez's yeah. bat. It was uh, that's all. It was, it, was, it was fun watching him blast balls into into the trees <laughs> that day as a 15 year old kid. That's a great one. I think the best the best example that I can think of off the top of my head is. Uh, East Coast Pro, and it was the premium Georgia-Florida matchup, which they, they typically schedule for the night game, and it's it's normally the most prospect-laden game of that event, and, and typically there's a good pitching matchup. That year, Ethan Hankins was throwing against uh, a really good Florida lineup. I think Tristan Cassis was one of the players. There, there are a few other notable guys that I'm, I'm just not thinking of right off the top of my head, but... When Ethan Hankins took them out at that event, I still think it's probably the most dominant um, pitching outing that I've seen at East Coast Pro and maybe just overall on the showcase circuit. Hankins was like working extremely quickly and just pounding the strike zone with elite stuff. He was almost working so fast that scouts in between pitches were really struggling to finish writing their notes. (laughs) And I remember just a scout in front of me was like, just let a few ex- expletives rip because he was like both very impressed and also annoyed at how quickly he was working and everything else was just silent and you were hearing the pop of the glove. It was, it was fantastic. So, I mean, mine isn't quite as good as Julio Rodriguez, but that's the one that always sticks out to me. I think that's probably the first super noticeable one that, that I can remember too. Cause that was first or second, actually that would have been my first year because Hankins was class of 2018, right? So that would have been 2017 summer. So, yeah, I guess the first impressions stick with you um, more than the others. Yeah, when when I'm there, like you said, obviously your your focus is on the 24s. I'm looking, again, kind of focusing on the 25s. But you're everybody's mixed in. It's not like there's a 20, the team of 25s playing other 25s. Mm. Like everybody's sort of 
mixed in amongst yeah. each other. So um, I, I think of like something like 18 of our top 30 players for 25 and maybe like 30 or so of our top 50 players for 2025 were there, uh, including some of the top arms like Seth, uh, Seth Hernandez, uh, the number one pitcher in the class from California was there. Uh, Josh Hammond uh, was hmm. absolutely one of the top pitchers for, yeah. for that year. Was I got was there to see. Well. I got to see both those guys. I didn't see Hammond pitch. I saw Seth Hernandez pitch, but I did. I did just happen to see um, Hammond in the lineup. I would have loved to see him live. I saw a video of his outing, and it looked really electric. But it was nice to see some of these guys that we've talked about in the pod, and you've been really excited about. And I've read your reports on them, um, and just getting getting a first look at them live is always really fun. I mean. Is there any player, and maybe we can talk about like most impressive looks that you had, but is there any player who changed um, your perspective on them as a player significantly at this event? Or was it more of just like adding another data point um, to what you have on players? Yeah, I would say there were, if we're starting with a 25 class, there were a couple of them. Uh, One of them is an outfielder, Brock Sell, who... We have, we've always been pretty high on, I and mean, we have him as a top 50 prospect in the class. Mm. Um, it's about 6'1", uh, maybe 6'2", athletic center fielder. I, I think he's always been somebody who I've, I've liked the swing, the strike zone discipline, the contact skills, the speed, ability to play uh, a premium position. And then, you know, we'll see about the, the power, it's been a lot of more, typically when I've seen it, it's been a lot of low line drives, balls on the ground. Um, but in Jupiter, I mean, he homered, triple, double, like he was, he was just mashing the ball in the air, uh, hitting good pitching, you know, using the whole field and all the, all the other offensive components that I, I, I was already pretty high on in terms of the, uh, you know, the ability to make frequent contact and control the strike zone, that was all still there. And then to see him drive the ball in the air with consistent impact was really encouraging to see. He made a fantastic diving catch in center field too. So uh, just adding even more confidence to the premium position part of his game as well. Uh, I, I think the I, I came away more impressed and more optimistic about his his future power potential or just the present power that he has right now. So he's somebody who I would, I would expect to be moving up next time we update those rankings. Yeah, that's a good one. I think one of the most impressive performers that I saw was Colin Mowry, a catcher and a first baseman out of Illinois. He's in the 2024 class Louisville commit, maybe next in line at that really strong Louisville catching pipeline. Um, but I, I saw him at area codes and I was really impressed with him as a hitter and a catcher. He had a lot of hard hit balls, a lot of quality at bats. And I think in terms of the the prospects that I was looking forward to seeing, like the game that I just happened to sit on for him, um, he had a, a phenomenal game. It was a home run to the left, the left field side, his pull side, um, left his bat at 98 miles per hour. Later in the game, he drove an 87 mile per hour fastball the other way into the right field fence. He was like maybe a foot shy of homering to the opposite field. That one came off his bat at a hundred miles per hour. Um, just a lot of really quality ABs, a lot of obvious strength, like, like hitterish traits that I saw with him previously. He still showed, 
I would have liked to see him behind the plate a little bit more. He was only DHing and playing first base. Um, so that was uh, kind of a bit of a bummer. But in terms of like personal cheeseball types, I think Colin Mowry is certainly one of those guys for me. I'm curious to see where scouts are going to line him up in this class on our next update. Another catcher in the 2024 class who I think had, I mean, he arguably had one of the best um, performances of this entire event was Hunter Carnes, who was the MVP of the event, actually. His his five-star top-tier Ruse Mafia team won the event. Uh, Carnes homered on the first day, homered on the second day. There were some pretty loud exit velocity numbers that were being thrown around that I don't I don't fully buy into, but regardless, the ball absolutely jumps off his bat. I went to go sit on him the third day, knowing perfectly well that it, it's going to be really unlikely that a guy's going to homer three three days in a row. So I certainly wasn't at the right games for him, but the sort of power that he has offensively from really a, a fairly average medium looking frame, like it, it's not like this huge physical body where the power is just obvious when he walks into the box, but He's got some bat speed. He's clearly got a lot of strength in his hands. Um, I, I'm curious to go back and look at more video of him and and see how much swing and miss really is in the swing because I, I think there is a little bit of length to the path. Uh, I thought he got a little bit aggressive at times. And again, the game that I was sitting on Carnes, he was just DHing. I think the team had already basically advanced um, through pool play, so they were they had a couple guys in their lineup that were getting some days off or just playing as extra hitters. So I didn't get a great read on his defense here, but he was a really fun player to see. And I think a guy who really turned a lot of heads and impressed a lot of scouts who I talked to, um, trying to see his actual numbers here. I think I have them, uh, somewhere. He was on the leaderboard for like top OPS of the event. He had three home runs in total. Again, I missed all of them despite trying to sit on him uh, at the event for one game. Let me see. I think his OPS was really good, too. Obviously, for all these guys, like the stats don't really matter as much. But, yeah, 1450 OPS in like six games, I believe. So uh, good event for him and a guy that I'm looking forward to digging into more. I like that you're coming around to saying OPS, but... Yeah, just a you know, cool. I've I've really caught myself doing that, and I'm kind of bummed. I think you, either you're wearing off on me, and I was I was listening to a podcast about the playoffs earlier today, and I heard them say OPS, and then I I was like I've been saying OPS more, and I felt really bad about it. I've got a, it's a bad habit I need to kick. Well, with more experience and and more age comes more wisdom. So, it's... you know, well, let me let me call up John Manuel and Jim Callis and and try and get them to to hammer it home for me. I think but they've got is, some good experience uh, too. Yeah, no, he's 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 a very athletic catcher, and he's he's a plus runner too. It's 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 an unusual profile for a catcher, and and definitely the both the power that he showed, the power, the speed, the athleticism are all pretty uh, enticing attributes. I think, like yeah, like where he plays long term to be to be determined, but I, he certainly has the athleticism where you could. And you could probably throw him out at least to start in if you wanted to put him in the outfield, you could probably put him in center field. Uh, I don't mm. know again that he would stick there necessarily long term, but I think he runs well enough that it's it's at least an option to to consider too. You know, I like those catchers who can run, Ben. You're you're getting me more excited about him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He I mean, another guy who you would not expect to run as well as he does. Uh, certainly based uh, either on position or just the way he's built is 
Sebastian Norman in the 2025 class. Hmm. He is an Oklahoma State commit. Uh, he's probably 6'2", 225, 230. Uh, looks like he could be playing nose tackle, and he runs uh, like a legit 6'5", in the 60. Hmm. Um, he has he has huge, huge raw power. He hits the ball just about as hard as anybody in the 25 class. In games, the, the, the way to swing at least has worked has been maybe not as much aloft in the swing, uh, but we, we, you know, we've ranked him pretty aggressively. It's 24, number 24 in that 2025 class. Um, he, he got into a couple balls that were ground rule doubles. He, he was able to drive the ball in the air. You could see the swing is, is evolving in the right direction where there's clearly huge, huge, huge power potential in there. I mean, I could see him being a, a 30 plus home run guy. If everything comes together, he just has so much strength and bat speed and, and athleticism. And, and it's a plus arm from third base too. Uh, so there's a lot to like. So if, if he's able to, uh, you know, consistently, and, and he doesn't swing and miss much either. So it's, it's not a matter of like, Oh, he has to, you know, cut down on swing and miss or learn to stop chasing breaking stuff or something like that. It's, it's just a matter of, um, you know, the, the way the swing works and, and you can see some really positive strides with the way uh, that his swing was operating in, in these games in Jupiter and, and gave me even more confidence that he could potentially fully tap into all that power and end up, you know, becoming mm. a, that, long-term middle of the order type bat yeah no, that's a good one uh, another hitter who was really impressive for me pretty consistently was dante nori uh, an outfielder with the canes national team he's out of Miss mm -hmm. uh, out of michigan committed to mississippi 2024 class um since we're kind of going back and forth between draft classes i feel like nori has been maybe one of the more consistent performers for me in person um so it's always it's hard not to like those guys I think Nori is going to be a very polarizing prospect for the industry because he did turn 19 at this event, actually. I think it was like halfway through was his birthday. He's already 19 years old. It'll be 19.8 in the middle of July next year. So there are going to be some teams that just absolutely crush him because of the model. Uh, and I think there's going to be some skepticism of his performance, just given the fact that he's much older than a lot of his competition. But... At the same time, he, he is a really, really good hitter. It's a very direct, compact swing. He uses the opposite field as as well as anybody that I've seen in this draft class. Like, It's a fairly maxed out frame. There's not a ton of physical projection. I don't think he's going to be a huge power guy in the long run. It's more of like a line drive swing who can use the entire field. But he is a good runner. He turned in 65-grade run times for me from the left-handed box. Uh, do you believe in 65-grade run times, Ben? Is that a thing that, that you're going against me on? I know I'm the half-grade guy at BA, but I feel like 65 yeah, run grade is pretty like objectively accurate. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he's a little faster than I'd give him at least a 70. But Well, the grades that I got were, were 65s. It wouldn't surprise me if he's a 70 runner. Um Aggressive on the bases. Uh, I think there was like one route that he ran in center field that wasn't the crispest, and he probably could have 
made a catch that that actually wound up being a double if he had a more direct route to the ball. But it was definitely like quick first step, the speed to be a good defender in center field, um, and just your like kind of old school leadoff hitter type qualities with Nori. Um, just a really fun player to watch and a guy that if he does go to college, I think he's going to be like one of those instant uh, performers who you can really uh, kind of feel confident about the production he's going to give you. So I, I like Nori quite a bit, even if he's got some pretty obvious, like maybe yellow flags um, from like a a pro evaluation standpoint. Have you seen much of Nori? What do you think about him? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's He's significantly older than even what we would call somebody who's old for the class. Like if you're turning 19 in the spring before the draft, that's generally on the older side of things. And he's turning 19 in the fall before, uh, like within probably this, what the first month or so of, uh, of his senior year already. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he could translate if he gets to Mississippi state right away, he probably could play there right now or frankly. is he mississippi or mississippi state because if it's mississippi state i need to update that i had him as mississippi let me check uh yeah you're right okay i need to actually fix that <laughs> as we speak on the on the podcast but yeah um i i, I saw he, he him has, as... i was just gonna Go say ahead. yeah it's because it he does have i mean he has now tools the the running abilities there he's one of the fastest players for 2024 he can play center field and he does yeah he hits in games it's he's, he's very strong he's very balanced too at the plate so like you said he you know he can use the whole field spread the ball around um, not sure he's going to be a, a big big power threat but i think the the age will maybe work against him in the draft but ultimately you have premium position, premium runner, uh, and somebody who, if you're confident in the bat, uh, I think especially this year where there's a lot of players in the top of the class who all have their own red flags or questions that they still need to answer. He's somebody who I think will still be valued pretty highly by uh, by quite a few scouts and, and quite a few teams. Yeah, he definitely feels like a... I'm not sure he's like the exact Ben type, but he is a shorter guy, hitterish guy, up the middle type that that you typically like. And I remember the first time I saw him was at Underclass Area Codes last year, and he actually showed off like pretty impressive raw power in game. It didn't really seem like he used that much, or not in game, excuse me, raw power in BP. I haven't really seen him use that much in game. It's been more of like spraying the ball around the field, low line drives, like we mentioned. Um, but he does have some strength in the tank. I wonder if he like switched up his approach, if he could tap into more in game. But I, I, I think his skill set and tool set um, is perfectly fine for him to spray the ball around. Yeah. All right, who else you got, Ben? Uh, yeah. Did you see? Did you see Cam Caminiti at all? I mean, he was the best. I did. Yeah, he was yeah. the. I mean, you're talking about people getting ready for a pitcher like scouts were lining up their golf carts like a full game before he started just so they could make sure they got a a good look at him um what are your thoughts on on kim nitty because i didn't think this was his best outing uh but i still prefer him as a pitcher i think as a prospect he's a two-way guy left-handed pitcher first baseman maybe corner outfield 
um, reclassified from 2025, now uh, in 2024. I don't know if we've talked about him on the pod or if you if you're with me in terms of liking him more as a pitcher, but he's like low 90s. In this outing, it was 90-94, touch 95. Just a very easy operation and look on the mound. Low three-quarters slot. Uh, everything comes out just super easy with him. Um, throws both a slider and a curveball. Neither of those pitches I thought looked great in this outing. Um, and he was also just a little bit more scattered in general than I've seen him in the past. But the fastball was getting tons of whiffs. Um, even like up and out of the zone, like he was dominating hitters with that fastball. I thought it was pretty easily his best pitch. He threw a, a decent change of pace change up as well, 77, 83 miles per hour. Um, again, not his sharpest look, but I think just seeing how he looks on the mound, the arm talent, it's easy to dream on him. Uh, I would just like kind of wonder about the breaking ball consistency and how good that pitch is going to be for him moving forward after this look specifically. But I have seen him better than than he was in the fall. And again, a lot of these guys have been playing a lot, so I'm not going to hold like a not perfectly crisp outing against someone who's who actually did come show up and pitch in this event. Yeah, no, I think he's definitely for me the brightest feature on the mound. I think he's one of the best pitchers, uh, maybe even the best left-handed pitcher in in that class. He's young for the class. He's been throwing up to 95 or 96 since he was since he was 16 years old, you know, which wasn't that long ago, but um, yeah, athletic does it really easy did yeah he did walk a, a few more guys than you would typically see uh I, I think it's it's something to keep an eye on at the same time in the fall like i mean seth hernandez who's the top is the top pitcher i think pretty clearly for the 2025 yeah. class right now like he came out i think he walked four batters and i don't know that he walked four batters like the entire yeah. summer too. so some of these guys <laughs> he, wa- are, he uh, was so seth was three innings one hit struck out four walked four caminiti was i think three innings no hits seven strikeouts and three or four walks um let me see here i just had caminiti just so you guys can follow along with uh with what we're talking about yeah caminiti Three no-hit innings, seven Ks, four walks. And I think even outside of just like walk totals, like both of these players were just a bit more scattered than I expected them to be and think they are typically, particularly Hernandez, who seems like he's he's generally much more precise than that, as you mentioned. But with both of them, I think you can just see the arm talent, the stuff that comes out of their hand, the build, the projection they still have physically uh, with Hernandez, especially like the spin of the breaking ball even when he wasn't really doing a great job getting on top of that pitch, it's very easy to see how that could become a plus off future or on other days when it's just more consistent. The changeup with Seth too, I thought had really unique sort of spin characteristics and shape. I was right behind the plate watching him and I was a little blocked out at times, but there were times where it looked like it had a little cut drop action. Then it was more like typical arm side fading life. What are your thoughts on that pitch and, and just Hernandez overall? Because he's definitely going to be a name that we're talking about more and more on this podcast as we get into the 2025 class. I mean, you've thrown a, a Dylan Lesko comp, so I was already really excited about him. And it's a high spin rate curveball like he had, a frame similar. I mean, I've, I've seen Dylan Lesko better, but uh, it's still a very fun prospect with a ton of upside here. 
I think you threw the Dylan Lesko comp out when you heard me describing him, but oh, did I? Oh, my bad. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't mean to. Uh, yeah, I want the it's next. It's one of the best. Lesko. It might be the best changeup in the twenty-five class. It's it's already flashing plus. It could end up a seventy. Um, ton of separation off his fastball plus the life the yeah. that you were talking about, the ability to repeat the arm speed and sell it really well off his fastball, which, oh, by the way, is, you know, up to 96 miles an hour, and he's typically pounding <laughs> the strike zone with it. And then he's got some feel for a curveball too, but he has so much confidence, rightfully so, in that changeup that uh, I think he throws his changeup more often uh, a lot of times than he throws the breaking ball. And then he's, you know, he's a two-way player. I He's 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 an interesting prospect with the bat, but I, I think his upside is so high on the mound. It's tough to beat what he has to offer there, but it, it also just speaks to his athleticism when you see the uh, just the way he moves around as a position player, just even just the bat speed that he's able to generate. So um, yeah, he's at Corona High School in California now, and they're going to have him. They're going to have. Billy Carlson, uh, another really good two-way player for 25, and and now Brady Evil. Uh, so that will be a shortstop for 25. So that's three of our top 11 prospects for the class. All yeah, at one high school. It's pretty pretty it's, ridiculous. I like. I was even hearing scouts talk about the fact that Corona was having these transfers come in and how loaded they were going to be for next year's class. So. When that news was official, and I just looked to see where where they all were on our board, I was like, "Man, that that's that's extremely loud." There are going to be a lot of scouts watching that team. I'm trying to think of which which would have been our most loaded high school teams in recent years. Some IMG team, I'm sure. Yeah, the IMG team that had. Oh, now I'm going to probably mix up some draft classes. Was um. Mariera well, and Elijah Green. Too. Yeah, you do have the underclass guys. I'm thinking of one draft class though. Harvard Westlake is like the the peak of this, right? Were they all the same draft class? Jack Flaherty's year, three guys, or were they just the same rotation? I think it was different draft classes, but either uh, way, with, yeah, Corona's with loaded. Gialito and Freed. Yeah, like maybe one of the best high school pitching staffs ever, but they weren't all the same the same class, were they? Uh, I'd have to go back and check. They, I don't, I don't think they were. I, they were all. I don't know if they were the same class, but they were teammates. Yeah, that's what I, I mean. Like that. Like they're all. Yeah, the they same. were teammates. They were all on the same team, like actual yeah. team together. Okay. Uh, trying to see if there are any other guys I want to talk about. Oh, Noah Franco, another player for the Canes team, another two-way guy, outfielder, first baseman, left-handed pitcher. We're talking about Cam and Itty, how I prefer him on the mound. Franco, early in the summer, I, I saw him both on the mound and as a hitter and liked, liked his upside both ways, but leaned more towards the bat. He obviously didn't pitch this week, but he looked really good offensively. I, I like him as a hitter. Franco is this big, tall, six foot three, 197 pound uh, left-handed hitter with a pretty aggressive swing, some length, but... He's consistently like driving the ball with impact, used all fields this week, actually looked really good at first base, a, a few nice body control plays around the bag, good footwork around the bag. Not that you're like scouting first baseman because you really want a great defender there, but the fact that he moved around well at the position and presents a high target I thought was encouraging. Are you on Franco as a hitter or a pitcher? He's he's a Florida product, still uncommitted. 
Um, unfortunately, he did I think he got injured at this event, came down the bag awkwardly, uh, was in crutches on Sunday. So hopefully it's just a minor injury for him, but he looked really good when he was on the field. Love watching him swing, uh, and I think he's going to be a really impactful left-handed hitter at the next level um, wherever he's playing defensively. I think probably can move around well enough to play the outfield, but i got to say I really like him at first base too. Yeah, I think he was at first base. Probably just didn't want him throwing at all because he is a two-way mm-hmm. player and he's he's not pitching uh, at this at this time of the year. But um, yeah, still to still to be determined. I think on which which is going to be the better option for him. I certainly have him still do both at this point. The it's kind of like an ideal pitcher's frame, six three high waist, long arms, more room to fill out, uh, touching, if not mid-90s now, close to it. And I'm sure he will be reaching probably mid to upper 90s at some point down the road. Uh, really athletic, a lot of good building blocks to have as a foundation as a pitcher. Uh, and then, yeah, there's there's power there, potentially – you know, above average, maybe plus power in the future, given given his size, bat speed, physical projection. He's on the younger end of the class, too. He originally was in the 2025 class, like Caminiti, so he's another guy who reclassified. I, I don't really have strong conviction one way or the other on pitcher versus hitter for him, but I, I like him quite a bit on, on each side. Yeah. Absolutely. He'll be a fun one to see. Maybe a little bit of uh, Bryce Eldridge there in terms of a guy that you like on, on both sides. Big left-handed hitter, uh, upside on the mound. Obviously, left-handed thrower uh, compared to Eldridge. But it's fun when you do get those two-way guys, even if Eldridge is actually a hitter, Ben. Um, did you see <laughs> Did you see Miguel Cimei Jr. or see his... I feel like we have to mention him. He broke the record for this event for velocity. He's only 16 years old when he did it. He touched 99 miles per hour. He's a 2025 prospect on the MLB Breakthrough Series team, which was another loaded team. Do you have any thoughts on him if you didn't if you did see him or if you're aware of him and like does it almost scare you that someone is throwing this hard at this young cuz I think that was my first thought. It was like, man, a 16-year-old throwing that hard it, it almost scares me as much as it. it's really impressive that he has that sort of arm talent. I mean, just the sample size of pitchers who've thrown that hard or even really close to that hard at 16 years old is really small. So I think sometimes we make the mistake of saying, well, these other 16-year-old pitchers or you know, 15 or 17-year-old pitchers who threw – you know, 99 miles an hour or whatever number you want to set the cutoff at and what was their success rate. And it's going to be low, but it's probably just also going to be low because the track record of any 16 or 17 year old pitcher from any population is going to be Hmm. pretty poor. But yeah, um, like I, I remember Luis Medina when the Yankees signed him out of the Dominican Republic, he was, I think he was touching a hundred miles an hour uh, the Philly signed Starlin Castillo out of the Dominican Republic when he was 16. I believe he was touching, I want to say 97 miles an hour, just offhand. So uh, pretty, 
pretty enormous velocity for that age. He's, he's probably not a bad comp. Uh, they, I think he was, I forget, the Phillies gave him a lot of money. Um, he's probably a, the closest comp uh, just offhand for, yeah. for Simi. I mean, he's it was one inning. It was almost all fastballs. He was throwing like 96 to 99 miles an hour. So, like, yeah, I get why you would uh, want to throw all fastballs in, in that situation. Oh, if so, I was that young and throwing – I mean, if I was any sort of pitcher and threw that hard, I would want to throw a fastball every single time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I cannot in any way relate to being able to throw anywhere near – that hard but um yeah lsu commit just like cam caminetti as well um mm. there's plenty more plenty more lsu <laughs> commits uh, on the way so yeah pretty pretty insane velocity to see because i and i'd heard about him ticking up in terms of the velo up to mm. up to 96 this fall so i expected him to come out and throw you know Sometimes they, you know, the guy who throws 96 only comes out and touches a, a 93 or a 94. I say only at 16, like that's still <laughs> pretty good. I, you know, somewhere between there, maybe he's amped up and actually does throw the 96 or, or maybe sets a new PR with a 97, but 99 miles an hour at 16 years old is just uh, uh, bonkers. Although at the same time, obviously there's no guarantee of, uh, future success just because you are throwing really hard at uh, at 16 years old yeah there were 27 different pitchers who touched at least 94 this week which is i mean just it feels crazy uh but everyone's throwing harder every year so i don't think it's a trend that's going anywhere anytime soon a- any other names you want to mention before we get off onto some other topics we could we could talk about players for probably three hours here just given the quantity that that we've seen but um, I'm not necessarily sure how many you want to keep going through. Uh, again, there, there's a lot of content on the site if you guys want to get really into the weeds about this. Um, yeah, I guess any other guys that, that stand out to you or that you're curious about? Yeah, I think you, you wrote about a lot of them on the site. I'm going to have more, too, on the, the underclassmen who really mm-hmm. popped for me at this event. But I uh, definitely recommend going online and reading your story for some more detail on, on a lot of these guys. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on to our next topic, which is big league playoffs, um, I believe, unless you wanted to touch on uh, – we also have a Mariners comment that maybe you wanted to make. We could do that too. Maybe it's it's all intertwined. We're going to our big league portion of the show, so let's just throw it all out there, Ben. Where, where are we going next? Well, it's October. Let's talk playoffs. Yeah, let's do it. So, I mean, how much have you been able to actually watch – uh, I felt like the wild card round was was actually pretty good for us because there were a few days where there wasn't any baseball because there were clean sweeps across the board, um, which maybe people didn't like. But I mean, for me, it just meant we could really focus on Jupiter and not have to worry about missing big league games. I don't know where exactly you want to start, but I think the the maybe the game that jumped out the most to me uh, was the Clayton Kershaw start, Oof. Dodgers D backs. And it it feels so bad because Kershaw is obviously like a first ballot Hall of Famer, maybe the best pitcher of his generation. And seeing him that game, I was like, man, is he done? Like, is he just, is he just, is it at the point where he needs to stop? Because the, the stuff looked bad. He was fooling no one. It, obviously, they just, 
absolutely barreled the ball against him. It was tough to see him get chased so early. I know that the Dodgers had a lot of pitching questions entering that series of the D-backs, and uh, there were questions for good reason. Every single starter, Lance Lynn, also got hammered. I think it was four straight home runs. Um, it just wasn't a great series for them, but but seeing Kershaw look like that was just so sad to me. Like We had just come back from the field, and I think we saw any number of high school players that had better stuff than he had, which seems crazy to say, but I, I think it was actually true. Like I hope that he's just hurt and can come back, but it really... Um, it was tough to watch. Yeah, none of these, none of the series. Um, I guess the the Phillies, the Phillies Braves <laughs> one is entertaining right now, certainly. And it's more entertaining for off the field nonsense than than on the field. Like we've had, we had a two zero series Philly against the Marlins in the wild card, Twins two zero against the Blue Jays in the wild card, D backs two zero against the Brewers in the wild card. Rangers 2-0 against the Rays in the wild card. The D-backs just swept the the Dodgers in a five-game series. The Rangers swept the Orioles in a five-game series. Um, and now the only two that were, I guess, close, the Astros won 3-1. It's at least not a sweep. And the Phillies, like you said, is the closest one. But it really does feel like the actual playoff baseball this year has not been as good. As like the last three years, it feels like we've just had nail biter games. It feels like a bunch of blowouts this year, which is not ideal. Although you still have moments like Corbin Carroll going off and Bryce Harper looking like an absolute monster and Zach Wheeler looking fantastic. Like we're still getting cool big moments, which I think you're always going to get. But hopefully, moving forward in the playoffs, we get some tighter, closer series. And two of the three best teams in the regular season getting bounced quick in in the Dodgers and the Orioles yeah I mean that one is not entirely surprising to me is it to you I mean we have a format that encourages it doesn't encourage but but more randomness comes in the playoffs inherently it's a bunch of small short series um if you add more teams in you're gonna have a higher chance of bad teams moving on like I don't think it's bad that the Diamondbacks are advancing. Like they're playing really well. They've they've really dominated every game they've played this postseason. But it's definitely not a playoff system that is set up for the best teams to advance. And I don't really think it does anyone justice by like trying to think of it that way. I almost separate the regular season and the playoffs entirely and try and just enjoy the the playoffs for the tournament and the chaos that it is. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Although it's been, like you said, a lot of blowout <laughs> games uh, yeah. in the series this year. But yeah, yeah, I think it's where it where it gets me is where we we tend to have these sweeping takeaways from these very short series games of like. Oh well, the the Dodgers are this very flawed team, or or the Orioles were just never going to win. Uh, why didn't they do X, Y, or Z? When it's really like these are small, very small sample. Like they lost, mm-hmm. they lost three games. Like it's yeah, it's not necessarily uh, an indictment of the way the the roster 
was built. <laughs> I mean, there, there are certainly, you can make cases that, hey, you should have done X, Y, or Z better in building yeah. the roster. But, uh, and, and it's not taking away anything from the teams that won either, but they, you know, they, they happen to outplay those teams on those days, right? Like the Dodgers mm-hmm. outplay the Dodgers in this series. The Rangers outplayed the Orioles in that series. And, and the, Astro, the Astros played better than the Twins in those mm-hmm. four games. So those teams, with their performance, deserve to win and yeah. move on to the next round. But I, I have trouble when people, after the fact, want to make these um, very strong claims about yeah. <laughs> why, why, why one of these teams that got bounced quickly um, was inevitably going to lose. Yeah, it's it's. I think we talked about this a ton. We love to put narratives on things. We love to try and explain things away. And sometimes you're right. You just you don't perform. You come out and for whatever reason you you don't hit well. I don't think. I mean, there's a lot of tension obviously on the Dodgers pitching staff and and how many injuries they dealt with. But Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman also really didn't hit well in this series. So they just, went one for twenty one with no extra base hits in yeah. the series. Like, <laughs> like these guys are gonna probably finish second and third hmm. in the NL MVP voting this year. Yep. And they and and they have a combined what three World Series rings. They've been in the playoffs seven eight years. Each of yep. them. 200 plus plate appearances you can't even make the argument that oh they, they just lack playoff experience like sometimes you just have a tough stretch yeah absolutely games, even if you're one of the best players or two of the best yeah. players <laughs> and i think the dodgers probably like it, it's funny we can compare and contrast the astros and the dodgers here in, in maybe interesting ways because the Dodgers really feel like they do get this criticism because they've they've been the best team in the playoffs so many years or they've been the best team in the regular season so many years and they go to the playoffs and they don't live up to the expectations that come with being like the best franchise in baseball or a top three franchise wherever you want to cut it off and so when you're just constantly in the playoffs and you are uh, you're giving yourself an opportunity to be a victim to just the randomness of baseball. Like there are just going to be more opportunities for you to fail on a big stage because you make it to the big stage every year. Like, I don't think any diamondbacks fan would trade their experience over the last 10 years with a Dodgers fan, but the diamondbacks, they look awesome right now in the playoffs because they just have, have gotten hot. But I don't think that takes away anything that the Dodgers did in the regular season. You made the point uh, about how good Mookie and Freddie are like, they just happen to not play good over a three-game stretch. That happens all the time in baseball, and and I don't think anyone is going to right now say, well, you know, Arizona really was smart about how they set their team up for playoff success this year compared to the Dodgers. Like sometimes you just are on the wrong side of performance, and that's happened with with all these teams that we're talking about. But the Astros, <laughs> I think, to their credit, or because they've 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 happened to just play well each time they get here. They seem to always be in in the ALCS. What do what do you do you think that do you think they are doing something better than everyone else in terms of figuring out postseason success, or do you think it's just a case of like being on the right side of the randomness of the postseason? Uh, there's probably some of each. Mm. Uh, like I, I think the the depth of your forty man roster matters more in the regular season than it does 
in the postseason, uh, how how healthy you are at the moment makes a difference in terms of your you know the, the true talent level of your team in October, which is some level of skill and roster management. Like right, like if you have a very old team, <laughs> that tends to be more uh, injury riddled. Like that's that's just going to come with the territory of building a team like that. Um, but a lot of it is just going to be chance too. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, and I would, I would apply the same thing to the Orioles where people are talking about how, you know, the, the Orioles are this, uh, you know, flawed team, of course, after the fact now that, uh, you know, almost like they were destined to lose in the postseason. But I, I would say like, look, if, if, if you're so confident that, and you could apply this to, you know, the Dodgers, the Orioles, any team that uh, lost quickly in the postseason, but if, if you're so confident that they're not capable of winning in the postseason, all right, let's say we run it back tomorrow and have another five game series between the Orioles and the Rangers. What, what percentage chance do you think the Rangers have of beating the Orioles. Like, do, do you think the Rangers are even the favorites here? Mm. Like, all right, let's, let's, let's say, for example, that you do, if you had to put money on it, how, how much conviction do you have that the yeah. Rangers will beat the Orioles? Like I'm, I'm guessing not a hundred percent, although <laughs> it seems like that's how some people speak about it after the fact, but like, <laughs> do, do you think they're 90%? favorites i'm guessing no if you do i'll, I'll gladly take the other <laughs> side of that bet i mean do you think they win that series 80 percent of the time 70 percent the the best team in baseball this year was during the regular season was the braves they won 62 percent uh of or, or excuse me they won 64 percent of their games mm-hmm. and that the Orioles won 62% of their games this year. They're matching up against a team that won 56% uh, again during the regular season. The the teams that are on the field in October are obviously not identical to the ones that were playing uh, in April and May. But even if you think that the Rangers are are somehow a better playoff baseball team then the Orioles, are, are you confident that they're better than, say, a 60-40 favorite to beat the Orioles? Hmm. So that, that, that's my point where I, there's, yeah, like the Rangers clearly outplayed the Orioles. The D-backs clearly outplayed the Dodgers in the series, like all the credit to them. But at the same time, I wouldn't take away uh, too much from from this when there is also still a a significant role that uh, chance plays in, in these outcomes, which Mm -hmm. I realize some people uh, (laughs) are just like viscerally against hearing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think the takeaway is just be very uh, conservative in in what your actual takeaways are from, from these results. And if you do want uh, a system that rewards the best teams, I think you would have to have a smaller playoff field. You'd have to have longer series um, in each, uh, each um each step of the way throughout the postseason but we we don't have that right now so we kind of need to take it for 
for what it's worth. But hopefully we get a more close and fun, maybe back and forth series with the Braves and Phillies. They're going to play tonight as we're recording this episode. Uh, It's Spencer Strider versus Ranger Suarez. There is a lot of noise going around this series. I think there have been a lot of people who have said like Braves Phillies now is, is one of the better rivalries in the sport. And it certainly feels like it's played out that way through the media with both of the fan bases being very into it. Some of the big moments that we've had, um, but really outside of game two, the Phillies have outscored the Braves 13 to two. So it hasn't really felt that close and it could be over while you're listening to this podcast on Friday morning. What are your thoughts on this series overall? Um, and do you think Orlando Arcia is, is crazy to have said attaboy, attaboy Bryce in in the clubhouse, the sacred clubhouse? I, I think this is kind of a, a ridiculous storyline that has gotten way out of proportion. Um, but, but that's the sort of stuff that happens in the playoffs when you actually have these sort of heated rivalries. And maybe this is what happens when the games aren't as interesting as the drama outside of the, the nine innings. Yeah, I would not... Uh... I would not advise talking trash about one of the opposing team's superstar player, um, <laughs> especially in front of a clubhouse full of uh, reporters. It just doesn't seem like the most prudent. Not that I think it really uh, probably had any effect on the outcome. Like Bryce Harper probably would have hit <laughs> that ball into outer space anyway. Um, but uh, probably so, just not the best decision to okay. Make. I, I would tend to agree. I am curious what you think. So Kevin Gossman was tweeting about this exact scenario. I'm looking at his Twitter feed right now. Four hours ago, he said, it's ridiculous us players have to watch what we say in our, all capitals, clubhouse. Then he followed up and said, some of y'all, man, all I'm saying is that you should not be allowed to quote a player or say you heard something like this in a clubhouse when you, the reporter, are not talking to that player. I think this is kind of a crazy take by Kevin Costman. Like, I don't think it is that hard to, as a player, like acknowledge when media is in your clubhouse and just know that like their job is to report things. And if you don't want them to report something, maybe that you wait until they're all gone to say it. But do you have any takes on like clubhouse unwritten rules or the sanctity of the clubhouse? I know, I think Travis Darno was quoted as saying like, uh, yeah, like some things like need to stay in the clubhouse and this is just going to cause us to like be more more guarded with, with what we say to the media and it's not great. Like what are your thoughts on this overall? Because to me it seems like this is like why you're paid millions of dollars to deal with the media and do this. Like, like a reason that you make all this money is because people want to know what you have to say and they want to have access into the players. They want to hear from them post-game. Like <laughs> the reporters are serving a very critical function here and obviously – me and you are sitting here as like the journalist side of this. So it's a, we clearly are in one camp, but I just feel like it's crazy that this is what Kevin Gosman is saying about this scenario, which admittedly is probably being way overplayed in, in the media and all the narratives we're getting from it. I think it depends on the specifics of the context, right? Like if I'm, you know, like if, if we're at a game and we're talking to, scouts or somebody in a front office like yeah like we're in the media but if we're just Mm -hmm. having a conversation like yeah we're not gonna quote them saying something like that's just 
part of. I have, I have never once quoted anyone without telling them that I was going to quote them. Yeah, so like it it depends on the context. Now, if you're in, and, and I obviously wasn't there, so I, I can't speak to this with any confidence. But if if the scenario is like, hey, th there's clearly a whole bunch of national media in there who you don't know who are there for a playoff game and who are there you know observing and writing and doing their jobs if you're in there i i would say it sounds like what he did was trash talking bryce harper i mean is that fair to to say well the problem is like you said we weren't there and and we can't know and i think it's been blown out of proportion on both sides but like what i came back to was mark bowman who is a Braves beat reporter for MLB.com. He's been in this locker room for literal decades and knows the players. And he said, he, he followed up after this and, and said, serious question, why does there seem to be a surprise reaction to Orlando Arcia's post-game clubhouse chatter? Something similar would have been said in the Phillies clubhouse if the Braves had made the base running mistake. This was just raw excitement, nothing malicious. So Mark, who I would trust more than really anyone who was actually there and me not seeing the scenario, doesn't think that, like what Arcia was doing was like a malicious attack or like aimed in like some sort of personal way against Harper. And it, he made it seem like it was more like them being excited at the end of the game. So it's really impossible to, for us from our position to suss out any intentions or try and say how it was phrased. And so when you get it, when you get it reported like this in the media, both sides are just going to use it however they want to whether it's the Phillies and you're like, oh, this is bulletin board material for us. This is going to fuel the fire. Like now we've got a chip on our shoulder. Or if you're like on the brave side and you're like, you just, you want to downplay it. Like I, I can't add any context to it because I wasn't there, but it really doesn't seem like some, it seems a lot more innocent than, than it has become. And I also think that it became more of a storyline after Bryce Harper homered twice in stare down RC. Like I didn't hear about this much until that point and i think if, if bryce just ha happened to have a quiet game and nothing came of it we probably wouldn't be talking about it right now yeah i agree with that yeah. the last part but are you saying what attaboy harper in mm. in the clubhouse and yeah that's the and, and they came out yeah and he's it's clearly he didn't intend for it to get back to harper he intended it for it to yeah. stay in the clubhouse but they're not denying yeah that it was said. I think there's a difference between saying that, which I think is, you know, trash talking your <laughs> opponent for making a base running out to uh, get doubled off and end the game, versus like, yeah, like great job, Harris, like, or <laughs> or celebrating your team or mm. your teammates for for winning this incredible ending to yeah. The game and like it, it creating this hypothetical of like, oh, well, the Phillies would have done the same thing is, I mean, it's just not who knows, but they didn't do that. So yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't agree with that part. I, I think, yeah, it's, it's just something he probably, I, I would not have advised him <laughs> to, to say in that scenario. I, I can't imagine he'll be giving, I can't imagine he'll be giving much more bulletin board material in this series. Um, but I mean, let's talk about that actual play in that game. Cause I do think that's been one of the really close back and forth, fun, exciting games. Like the ending of that game two Braves Phillies game was just a blast to watch like Michael Harris tracking back, making this athletic play, 
uh, Bryce Harper, the the best player on on the other team, being involved in it. Austin Riley coming across and making a really nice body control, instinctual play. Like, and it was all bang, 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 and like hearing the crowd get loud. That was one of the the higher points of the series in terms of on the field action. Um, and I don't even necessarily think that it was some terrible base running mistake from Harper. And I'm curious if you view it differently because. It, it, it felt like he was making a calculated risk attempting to score from first on what would have been the tying run of the game, and Harris just made a phenomenal play. Do you think it was like an obvious base running error? Because to me, it, it more felt like a great defensive play than any like crazy gaff from Harper. Yeah, this feels like one of those things where the uh, the answer is obvious after the fact based on whether he makes yeah. that catch or not like if he yeah. doesn't make that catch oh wow bryce harper great instincts yeah aggressive base runner mm. so smart i mean what are the odds that harris was like the true catch probability on I that play that probably harris pull that actually, up really quickly but yeah keep well going. yeah i'm i would say the true catch probability not necessarily the way they calculate it based on um Statcast. Well, now that you say that, I am curious, but yeah, I take your point. Well, there, you know, there's like, uh, it doesn't, it can't account for the wall in that specific (laughs) situation. And like this, I would say Mm. also the intensity of that game and that moment, like the entire stadium is going absolutely bonkers. (laughs) Like, I don't know, but it's, it's pretty, it's very unlikely, I would Mm. say, that Harris makes that catch. And most, uh, and as far as good as Harris is, maybe. Maybe I should even upgrade uh, his his chances of making that play, but I I don't I don't the think ex- it would have been. I don't the think expected batting been. average on that play was a six ten uh, from Nick Castellanos. I think I can find catch probability as well, but pretty well, high I think for they, that. They also calculate those stats differently, which is not. Really yeah, it's it's mostly based on it. angle and exit velocity. I think are the two big factors there. I think might be yeah. the only the only two. So it, I don't think it would have been a mistake had Harper ran it more conservatively and what you end up at with runners on, uh, uh, if the hit falls in, runners at second and third. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it's a grave mistake that he was running aggressively thinking that uh, it was overwhelmingly likely for that ball to land for a hit and for him to be able to score from first on that play. Yeah, and uh, so I just pulled it up. The catch probability, according to StatCast, was 45%, but they do note that it doesn't really factor in leaping into the wall and a lot of the nuance of it. But Or the direction, yeah, yeah, of the ball. I mean, speaking of Bryce Harper, I think he has the most beautiful-to-watch left-handed swing in baseball, and I also think that it's awesome that Bryce Harper is, like, fully embracing this, like, Philly persona and is dominating in the playoffs he's currently hitting 455 571 1273 is the slug the ops is 1844 getting back on track there he's homered three times in the series um he's just been phenomenal and it's really fun to watch like the stars of the game doing it in the postseason because you can't really take that for granted sometimes these guys never get the opportunities and and sometimes when they do like Again, just this year, uh, Mookie and and Freddie and and really Ronald Acuna, he's not been great so far in the postseason. So it's not it's not a guarantee that all of your stars are going to perform in these big moments. But to see like the home runs that that Bryce had the other night were just monstrous and epic, and it, I think it's just been fun to see. And I'm hopeful that 
tonight we get some more good moments because it's going to be power bat versus power arm, Spencer Strider on the mound. Um, and I think, too, that even though I think a lot of the noise and the, the drama surrounding these games are kind of ridiculous, it does add to the environment and, like, the hype of it. And I think it's good for baseball to have these big prominent figures involved in it more more eyeballs are probably going to be on tonight's game than otherwise would have been maybe some fans who are just more casually invested or, or didn't care at all are going to tune in now because they've heard about the harper arcia drama they've seen the the video of harper staring down arcia after the home run they've seen the highlights like there's just a lot of noise and attention they listen to our podcast yeah they listen to our podcast about it and and before listening to our pod, they weren't in, but they were like, you know, after sitting through two hours of Ben and Carlos talking about 2025 prospects, I'm really going to watch this playoff game now. But I just think it's fun. I think it's, I hope the game on the field lives up to all the hype that we have, but it would be cool for this this rivalry to kind of take another step forward. Uh, and I think a game five in this series would be would be awesome. So I'm crossing my fingers that's what we get. I think I think we're allowed to root for game fives and game sevens if we're allowed to root for anything right ben yeah there is a, a beautiful violence to his swing which is yes. this uncommon combination usually you think of a beautiful swing as an easy swing especially like that easy mm. loose fluid yeah, left-handed swing this whereas, is not your ken griffey jr left-handed swing no but it is still so aesthetically pleasing to watch him one thousand percent it's like the it's just like a ferocious swing you know and he he also does this he has kind of like a stoic finish all the time like he definitely has some some moxie and will like the stare down is a great example for how harper kind of celebrates like he's not super flamboyant in how he celebrates but you can still get some of his personality in his celebrations which is when he was 16, 17 years old playing in the junior colleges. Yes. Uh, yeah, he definitely was. He, it, it's calmed down more for him. But it's it's interesting to talk through Harper, too, because I have a lot of Braves fan friends. Like, just growing up in North Carolina, there's a lot of people who are Braves fans. And I think Harper is probably one of their most, like, hated players Part of that is just because he's a great player who's played for a rival team his whole career and has always been very good against the Braves. But yeah. I think for whatever reason, Harper came into the league with with a reputation as being this kind of like grindy, like rubs you the wrong way if he's not on your team. Whereas like I, <laughs> I think that he's awesome and I'm trying to get all of my like Braves fans friends to like acknowledge that he's awesome and cool to watch. It, and they're just like absolutely not having it right now. Um, but no, it's just been fun to watch and, and I agree with, with the swing and that this, this is like our, our last hope of this round for some good baseball. So I hope we get it. I would say too, he's one of the players, I, I would say even still today as a, you know, player in his thirties, mm. which is, I don't know, maybe uncommon, but a lot of the, a lot of the young players today, like players in high school or younger ages, like he's he's their favorite player or the player they try to model mm. their swing after. Like you see, you definitely see a lot of players at the amateur level who are trying to swing and, and model their swing after Bryce Harper, which I feel like you typically see in in younger uh, younger big leaguers. Mm. But he still he still has that like cachet with with a lot of 
uh, yeah. with a lot of youth. What do you, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because just his prospect status has just kind of held him over the fact that he's lived up to the hype he came into the league with, like two-time MVP, like consistent all-star? I mean, yeah, all of that, I, I imagine, factors into it. Yeah, I think all of it. Hmm. Um, and just being... Being like the man, since he was like 16 <laughs> yeah. years old on the cover of Sports Illustrated, or maybe it was 15, but he was such a big deal at that age and deservedly so. Like as an underclassman, he was just so much better hmm. on the same field as the top, like, you know, seniors or incoming seniors for for that year from all around the country. And he's en route to this hall of fame career now and he plays with like swagger and passion uh and he has that again that beautifully violent left-handed swing so much power uh the big contract and he's he's living up to it now so i think all of that um all of that factors into it yeah i'm trying to pull up really quickly the the active postseason leaders for home runs um, I actually think that I have to, I'm going to have to refresh my stat head subscription to do that. But Harper has 14 currently, and I'm curious where that ranks. I think that would be near the top of the list, <clears throat> but either way, yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be fun to keep watching the series. I'll try and get this before the pod ends. Say probably Jose Altuve has got to be up there for, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> given how many, uh, he has. Or just how many games he's played in the postseason. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, actually, when we were in Jupiter, it looks like or, my or, stat or George. Yeah, George Springer. Probably, probably just a bunch of the Astros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any other thoughts on this series specifically or any other postseason comments? Uh, yeah, I think those are my main uh, main takeaways. Yeah. All right. Well, fingers crossed for another good game tonight. Um, I know you yeah. also wanted to mention the Mariners and, and this whole 54% thing that happened while we were in Jupiter. So give us give us the background on that, Ben. What What's going on with that? Yeah. So we recorded early last week because we were going down to Jupiter. And then uh, the Mariners had their uh, year-end press conference, right? So their their GM Jerry Depoto was there, and he made some comments that went over extremely well with the <laughs> fan base that just missed the playoffs yet again. Uh, and he said, so so part of his quote was he he talked about how I'll, I'll just read part of what he said. He said, if you go back and you look in a decade those teams that win 54% of the time always wind up in the postseason, And they more often than not wind up in the World Series. So there's your bigger picture process. Nobody wants to hear, quote, the goal this year is we're going to win 54% of the time. Because one year you're going to win 60%, and another year you're going to win 50%. But over time, that type of mindset gets you there. So, uh, as you can imagine, the team that <laughs> the fans of the team that just <laughs> missed the playoffs uh, and have barely made the playoffs at all, 
while Jerry DePoto has been the GM. Uh, we're not too thrilled with that. And and when I heard the quote, I, honestly, my, my assumption was just that he, when he said that, was that he just spoke in a clumsy manner that didn't properly explain the point that he was trying to articulate, mm-hmm. right? Like you and I talk here every week or, or we try to talk every, <laughs> every week for two hours at a time. And over the course of talking for two hours, I know I've said things where a hundred percent. Yeah. You really mess moment, up all the time, Ben. Even in the moment, I'm like, like, like I, I didn't, like, I, I just didn't speak with the clarity or the mm-hmm. precision that I intended to. Yeah. Um, like when I'm trying to make my point, and if you just spend enough time speaking publicly, eventually you're going to make a mistake with the way that you phrase something or with what you're trying to say. So I'm, I'm very much sympathetic to that. When, when I heard his original comments, I thought he, what I thought he meant was we're trying to get to the World Series every year. And the way to do that is to build an organization that is so full of talent uh, both at the major league and uh, at the minor league pipeline that you're making the playoffs every year. Cause if you're mm. in the playoffs, once you're there, any team can win it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a, the reality is it's a small sample size tournament. And if you're yeah. in the playoffs, everything we've year, been talking about today. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just more shots on goal to win a world series once you make it. So, so that makes sense to me, right? Like we talked about it here. We talked about it last time, how, you know, again, like the Braves, as good as they are, what do we say? They're like a 20, 25% chance just yeah. to win the World Series going into the playoffs. And that was the best team yep. in baseball. Which, which, felt, which, which honestly felt high. <laughs> 25% felt high. But yeah. yeah, yeah, your point is taken. So, but he came out, so he came out later and he said, <clears throat> he said he was embarrassed. He said he made a mistake that he tried to use humor to, to lighten the situation and that it wasn't what the moment called for. But he didn't, he didn't really back away from the original comment where he said, nobody wants to hear that the goal this year is we're going to win 54% of the time and how over time that, that type of mindset gets you ultimately where you want to go as as an organization. Uh, And he said, it's something that, you know, makes more sense to him than it does to fans. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the part that I would be concerned with if I were a a Mariners fan, when it comes to uh, their internal process. Uh, One is like, so, I mean, we, we can just start with the results before we get to the process. The, the strange thing here, obviously, I think, is that like Jerry DePoto is not in year two or year three of uh, a rebuild in his tenure in Seattle. He, he's been the GM of the Mariners for eight years, and his stated goal of winning 54% of your games, his organization has not accomplished that mission they've won 51.6 percent of games in eight seasons <laughs> they've been to the playoffs one time in eight seasons so that's not quite a full decade but for them to get to a 54 
0.0% winning percentage um, during his 10 years running the Mariners, they would have to average 102 wins over the next two seasons. Hmm. I, I don't like, I, I don't think that Mariners are actually like in a bad spot in terms of their outlook over their next three to five years. Yeah. But, but if your objective is to win 54% of your games over a 10 year period, the Mariners more than likely are going to fall short of of that stated criteria. When did when did the 54% become the goal though? Maybe we maybe we're going to start from 2021 <laughs> when they won 90 games instead. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know, it's it's I would say charitably a a bizarre thing to ask fans for patience when it's been one playoff appearance in 8 years. Uh, uh, more than more than eight years, the the Mariners fans have been around a lot longer than eight years. But yeah, well, see what you mean if you're during, just holding it to to his tenure, sure. Yeah, I, you know anything before he came on board, I you know it's not his responsibility. But sure. I, I, but you I, do I, have to take on like <laughs> the history of the organization joining, like being aware of the fact that this this is an organization that hasn't had postseason success basically the entire century. Like <laughs> even if you weren't there, like you can't depend on their patience just resetting because there's now a new guy in charge. Right. And I, and I think he recognizes that, that mm. that was a poor choice of words on his part. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, the second part though, and, and this is where I would be more concerned is where he says, nobody wants to hear the goal this year is we're going to win 54% of the time. And, and that's because the goal of a, team with playoff aspirations should not be to win 54 percent of the time so 87 basically uh, it's in 87 88 games that's what 40 54 percent is like 87.4 or something yeah 87 88 win team because yeah. in a 10-year window there's going to be some lumpiness to mm. those wins sometimes you're going to end up winning 70 games you might end up with multiple seasons over 10 years where you win 70 75 games you end up with um, you know uh, you're doing a, a reset or a, a rebuild or or you yeah. just get smoked by injuries yeah uh, one one year right or you're like the padres and you just have bad luck or or you're the cardinals and yeah. you have this 2023 Cardinals type season and, and you win 70 games in those two seasons. Hey, the Cardinals got to be over that 54% threshold over the last decade, right? Like that's the team that's doing it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, they they have. Yeah, they've done it. But if, if you just have a couple seasons like that, mm -hmm. then the out like two seasons of winning 70 games, whether it's a rebuild or uh, or just a breakdown like what happened in, in St. Louis this year, if you have two two seasons of that, then the outcome you need to have a 54% winning percentage over a 10-year window is you need to average 92 wins over the next eight years. So if your objective is to put an 87, 88-win team on the field uh, and hope that variance swings in your favor, the the odds are, are stacked against you. Mm. And the the problem is like if, if you want to look back in the rear view at a a 10-year window and say teams that won 54 percent of their games typically ended up 
with a lot of postseason ex, uh, appearances that, uh, you know, th those teams year in and, and year out were not necessarily always trying uh, to win 54 percent of their games each season there there are a lot of uh you know rebuilding years within years where you just end up sellers at yeah. the at the deadline uh, but in the competitive years you're trying to win what 90 95 plus games yeah uh, to get your team to the postseason and th and then if there is variance in outcomes that that depoto is alluding to where if you have a team that you think say is a, a 95 win true talent <clears throat> level team you yep. might you might end up winning 100 games you might end up winning 90 games or, or 88 games uh, and you've built yourself a you know a, a margin of safety to still end up a playoff team whereas if you're settling for trying to put a a 54 percent win team out there but to win 87 88 games um, if if you play to your true talent level you, you probably won't get the advantage of winning your division you, you might still miss the playoffs mm -hmm. with 87 wins which is something that has now happened to the mariners for two of the last three seasons uh, and the variance to the downside is even a couple of wins under 54% means it's it's very unlikely uh, that you end up being a playoff team. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I think I think part of it, too, is like if, if you are going to expand the playoffs, owners love that because the bar that you need to reach has just been lowered. Like we're adding two extra teams. So. I mean, theoretically, there there are owners and teams out there who are trying to do the bare minimum to get into the playoffs each year. I, I I tend to agree with the point you made at the very beginning of this, when like you want to the best way to try and win is to consistently put out a team that's getting you into the playoffs, so you have more shots on goal. Uh, I don't know how. I'm curious, like how Mariners fans feel about this now, but it it did just come across as just kind of odd. And we should all just be maybe setting the bar a little bit higher for what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I, I agree that the goal should be to put a sustainable yeah. winner out there every or a sustainable playoff contender every year. But I don't think 54 percent is is no. the bar where the bar should be set. If, if your goal is in building a a best in class sustainable winner, like the, the two teams that have done that yeah. the best over the last 10 years have been what the Dodgers, the Dodgers and the Astros right and over yep. the last 10 years so the Dodgers have won 62 percent of their games which mm -hmm. is bananas the the, the Astros have won 57 percent of their games which does include that 70 win yeah. season at the tail end of the if the if the Dodgers just years. won a few percentages less they'd have better playoff success is basically what I'm hearing. go for <laughs> don't go for 62 percent in the regular season like hold some of that back hold hold about four percent back for the playoffs and then you can be like the Astros and make it to the championship series that's yeah. what I've learned from this I mean obviously the Dodgers have resources that the Mariners or at least that the Mariners GM uh, does not have at his disposable or at his disposal. So I'm not saying 
the bar for success is you have to average a uh, hundred wins per year, like, <laughs> like the Dodgers. Uh, but the Astros have averaged 92 wins per year. It's not that anything less than mm-hmm. 92 wins per year over a, a decade is something I would consider a failure. But if your objective is to build a perennial playoff contender, uh, that's, that's the model of what should at least be the internal goal to set, not let's set out to build an 87, yeah. 88 win team during our competitive window and then hope that variance uh, swings in our favor to get us over 90 wins and into the postseason. Yeah, it's also weird too, because just in a vacuum, that number, I mean, maybe you could make a case for it, but it, you should just be looking at the best teams in your division and trying to be better than them. And that's, if you're in a division with the Astros, like 87, 88 wins is not going to get it done. Maybe if you're in the AL Central, that would be like more palatable, but you have to factor in like the competition that you have. And it just feels a bit, it's just weird. The whole thing is kind of weird. Yeah. Again, like I'm fully on board if, if the message is we want to be a contender every year. We're yeah. not just going to mortgage our, our farm system, trade off all our best prospects <clears> to try <throat> to just go all in yeah. for one or two years. And then. But you know what they have to do now? If they actually want to do that and they don't want to have those down periods, you're going to have to pay someone. You're either going to have to supplement with free agents, you're going to have to extend some of these young stars that you have. Like. If if you want to contend every year, you should be putting a payroll out there that that kind of backs up your intentions, right? You can't just expect to outsmart every single person, and you can't expect to be the Rays, basically. Like, the Rays have been able to do it, but no one else really does. Brewers are getting up there. Yeah, again. The Orioles, well, the Orioles, the Orioles haven't sustained The Orioles have not, no, they've not gotten close to being able to But they just put a 100-win team on the field this year, Mm -hmm. and I think... And we'll see what they do with all their young players. (laughs) Yeah, I I think, yeah, the the payroll part, I think, is, uh, it's tough, because that's, uh, that goes above the the GM and and the management and the front office part presumably the goals of the gm would align with what ownership wants though and like at at a certain point you're in a competitive field and if ownership doesn't want to have these dry spells like you need to you need to pay good players like you you just are not going to just magically unless you are about to pull off like dodgers scouting and player development and raise trades it's going to be very hard to be competitive and pick at the back of the first round and not get all these elite talents in like you're gonna have to do everything exceptionally well if you're also playing on not paying people but i guess we'll see what all these we'll see what the mariners do with their financials we'll see what the orioles do with their payroll but consider me skeptical for now yeah i think the main thing for me is just as far as like an internal process the bar the bar is just set too low there Mm -hmm. and it's going to probably ironically if they're afraid of uh becoming one of these teams that ends up in this stuck in the middle type situation that um is not accumulating top draft picks is is not in a rebuild and and building up the farm system that way uh but ends up just coming up short 
of mm. the postseason because you're trying to win 87 win, uh, 87 games or, or build an 87 88 win team each year uh, you may end up in that uh, really uncomfortable middle ground too yeah no one wants to be there all right ben i do have a list of active postseason home run leaders do you want to try and get as many top 10 players as you can on this list because you were definitely on the right track earlier on but i finally have the list in front of me uh jose altuve he's number one he has 24 the second place player is five behind him which is just crazy is it is it springer it is george springer so you're you got one of two george springer has 19 uh altuve has 96 games in the postseason springer has 67 i'm just gonna go down the astros bregman bregman is five so you got him he has 16 correa correa is three uh, at 18 (laughs) do they really have one yeah one one two and three yep three and five Yes, and oh, I guess that's everyone. So now, now it gets trickier for you. You can't just pick Houston players. Uh, but a good start. You've you've not missed a single player. It kind of feels like Jordan Alvarez, but I don't no, think he's, he's, he's up there yet. He has ten. He's sixteen. So he's not far off. He has ten. Jeez. Yeah, he's <laughs> he has like, ten in fifty-one games. That's bonkers. Uh, mm-hmm. Mookie. Mookie, no. Um, let's see where Mookie is. Quite a bit far down, actually. Uh, yeah, Mookie only has four Freddie in, Freeman? in 58 games. He, no, Freddie Freeman just misses. He's tied with um, Jordan at 10. Freddie Freeman is tied with Jordan Alvarez? So Freddie Freeman has 40... Um, Freddie Freeman has 10 home runs in 49 games. Jordan Alvarez has 10 home runs in 51 games. Wow, he's played in more games already. Wow, okay. Yep. It's Astros, man. Yeah, they're crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, the, uh, I mean, one of them should be obvious based on how this was, was started initially. Trying to think now. Well, Harper? Yeah, Harper's, yeah. Harper's number seven with 14. Okay. So you've got... Um, two, two players with more than 14 who are non Astros who you need to get. And then you've got a couple from another team that is also frequently in the playoffs, but I don't, one of them is not obvious. And one of them maybe is a little more so. I'll say we've got a, I'll, I'll give you the teams. We've got another Philly here. We have two Dodgers, and then we have a Tiger. A Dodger? Two Dodgers, two Dodgers. And and all these players have played in the playoffs with multiple teams, but I think the teams you would most associate with them are Dodgers, uh, maybe Rangers. Hmm. Oh, Corey Seager? Yep, Corey Seager is okay. eight. He's tied with Bryce Harper um, with 14 home runs. He's been in 66 games. So you're looking for one other Dodger player, and I think this is the l- less obvious player, so I might just give you him if you is don't it, have anyone obvious. Is it J.D. Martinez? No, it's not J.D. Martinez. Um, J.D. Martinez has 10, though. He's with a big group just out of this. That has 10. Did you say one of them is a Philly, too? Another Philly you're looking for, yeah. Current Philly. Or, uh, Schwarber, then. Yep, Kyle Schwarber has 15. He has one more than Harper. Um so now you're looking for a a player who's played with four teams. 
um, older player. Two, you're looking for two older players, and then I guess all Miguel Cabrera. Cabrera is nine. He's your Tiger. He has 13 home runs, which is honestly would have expected more. But there were a lot of years where he just wasn't in the playoffs, unfortunately. So now you're looking for two. I'm kind of impressed with this, Ben. You're you're about to get them all. Two. You said uh, Cody Bellinger. Not Bellinger. No. Still looking for the Dodger. This player also played with the Red Sox. In oh, the current is he? He's a current Dodger. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Current Dodger. Yeah. Um, Muncie? No. Well, he played for two teams this year. But he's been back and forth. I'll just give you this one. I don't think you'll get it. Kike Hernandez. Oh, yeah. I don't think I'm not going to get that one. <laughs> All right. Your, your last one is played for four teams. I'll give you the teams. Let's see if you can get them. Uh, the Orioles, the Twins, the Rays, and the Rangers. Orioles, Twins. Currently on none of those teams. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Orioles. Twins. Near the very end of his career. <laughs> uh, I feel like I should. You probably will feel like you should have this one, but I don't think it's obvious. You want me to give it to you? It's 18 home runs. Um, let me see if I can give you any other hints. Seven-time All-Star. Uh, <laughs> international player. Dominican Republic. You're gonna be mad when you hear it. Yeah, <laughs> he was like a. My brain is not. Okay, I'll I'll just give it to you. We'll we'll wrap this up. Nelson Cruz at 18. Does he? You're talking about active players. I mean, he played this year. <laughs> yes. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. All right, we'll count. I said tail end. Okay, so the full list. I'll I'll run down it really quickly for listeners who are playing along. If you want to see. Um, the full list it's Altuve, Springer, Correa, Cruz, Bregman, Schwarber, Harper, Seeger, Cabrera. Um, that's um, and then Kike Hernandez. So that's your top 10. I guess Aaron Judge and Justin Turner are technically tied for for 10 with Kike. I probably should have said that. Um, Kike, Aaron Judge, and Justin Turner all have 13. So those are your like your your current active home run leaders. Um, I think you did a pretty good job, Ben. Yeah, so I can't well believe Jordan Alvarez is actually that high already. He's been in the yeah. It's kind of shocking that he has so many games already, fifty-one games, and in terms of the leaders, his first it's him and Randy Rosarena. Both their like years started in twenty nineteen, so they they've Rosarena has eleven. Um, so those are the two like most recent that have just done a lot of damage in recent years. Yeah, he's 26 years old. That's wild. <laughs> he hits a lot of home runs. He's got power. Oh, he's a good park for it. Absurd. Especially yeah. this, this year. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Ben, that's all I got today. You got anything else? No, but uh, let's go watch some baseball. Yeah, I'm very excited for tonight. So hopefully it's a good game. Fingers crossed. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Um, He's Ben. I'm Carlos. We will see you in the next episode. We appreciate it. Take care.